A child is born. Given the name Stephen by his parents, this child would grow into a man. A man who would fill himself with Pabst Blue Ribbon and cocaine. Evil cocaine! Cocaine possessed by an ageless terror that is also a rock and a spider and a vending machine. A vending machine that only vends spell of this devil powder, Stephen would become known as the scariest man in America. Not because of erratic drug-induced mood swings, but because he made America read again. And America fears nothing more than literacy. What's scarier than a cocaine addiction? The work of Stephen King on film, part one. <laughs> This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and Richard Bachman to my Stephen King. It's Hank, the greaser who works at a gas station in Maine. The man's heart is made of Estonia, you know, Nash. See, he's a greaser who works at a gas station in Maine. Listen to his voice. I'm a greaser. Work at a gas station in Maine. That's me. Okay, I challenge you for the entire show. Let's All right. Maine accents, both of us. This is going to be a fun one. So, uh, if you haven't figured it out, we're going to talk about old Stephen King films tonight and for the next few weeks. I'm not doing this Maine accent the entire time. I will. I'll I sound like a carnival walker <laughs> for some reason. I sound like Catherine Hepburn, so I don't know <laughs> how far this is going to go. But yeah, so we decided what better way to celebrate Halloween on the uh, the new Death by DVD than completely cop out and talk about the same subject for the rest of the month. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about I Stephen challenge King. you. All other podcasts will be talking about how Halloween 3 and fucking Sleepaway Camp and we've like done those to death so we're gonna talk about Stephen King movies but it's not kind of not the good ones we're not gonna talk about The Shining <laughs> <laughs> okay and not a good way to start this off uh, by just shitting yeah, on so we'll be talking about like first of all we're not gonna be talking about The Shining because who gives a fuck we but just we talked did, about like, Carrie two or three years ago so I know a lot of people that are, are now listening to Death by DVD you've just caught on and you're a new fan but for those freaks that have been with us for quite some time we did a very long bitchy shining show that was all about me angrily saying it's not about the indians because i watched that jackassy documentary well i mean the things we will be kind of like the shining it's just kind of pointless it's of course a classic so why discuss it on this show it's been talked to death at this point we probably won't be talking about his um, more successful dramatic work it turns out stephen king is a much better dramatic writer than is a horror writer. I mean, look at Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, any of that stuff. At least they make better dramatic movies than his horror makes horror films, for the most part. Not on a whole. And we won't talk, we've talked about It, the It remakes endlessly in the past couple of years, so 
We're talking about the shit Stephen King movies mostly. And there are some, I guess, peanuts in the turd you can pick out here. There are little nugs. This isn't going to be completely awful. And I mean, we could talk about, I guess, Steve, Steve Z. I'm going to call him Steve Z for the show. But uh, you should know enough. I mean, he's from Maine and he writes books. And um, in the '80s, he did a lot of blow, and it's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then he got hit by a car one time. And uh, he had some kids. Yeah, you know, he's he's had a life, I guess you could say, doing a biography of Stephen King. He's lived one of those things, but... I guess, like, um, one thing he has proved that if you do get hit by a car um, as an author, your writing starts to suck. I don't know if that's universal, but in this test case scenario, yeah, his work really suffered after he got in that major car accident. And I'm pretty convinced some sort of gypsy's curse was put upon the guy that railed him because he had a pretty unfortunate <laughs> life afterwards. I just, I don't know. Right. There's your curse. Stephen King has a, like, a an interesting track record, I guess you could say, because uh, despite the Richard Bachman differences and how he started his career and using a pseudonym, his style has drastically changed from, you know, the beginning to now this massive multiverse that he's created that transcends time and space. So all of his stories somehow can have an elaborate reason for existing, despite not being completely coherent, like Cell. He likes Marvel movies, that guy. Martin Scorsese does not. Where do you stand with with this whole thing? Uh, on a whole, he is correct. I'm not saying it's not a movie, but it is a different form of entertainment. You can add drama, you can add all these things to it, but what Scorsese is specifically calling out is cinema as a art form, as like a dramatic art form, telling stories like Mean Streets or even something like Rocky or something like that's all kind of going by the wayside, but he's not completely true because like cinema now is no longer a theatrical experience it's a streaming experience all the good movies you'll probably like the actual good oscar contenders and all that kind of shit you'll probably watch vod or on netflix or something at some point going to the theater to see a work of art is out the window you're going for amazed balls amusement park rides it's james cameron's fault so congratulations hank i don't completely agree with an assessment that they're not art and that is sort of difficult to, you know, I guess it's hard to say it this way, but Marty just seems like an old man now yelling at the sky, essentially Clint Eastwood with that empty chair. I get it. Some of the soul and value has been stripped out of the thing, but you're just really kind of being an old man. You know, back in my day when we had to do indie film, when it was hard, I, it really wasn't that hard for any of these guys when they first started. It wasn't comparatively of how it would be to make an indie film and get it off the ground in this day and age. So I don't really get it. What I think he's specifically referring to is it's not so much that this can't be art and blah, blah blah what he's talking about is basically the director as an artist is kind of out the window because when you get the producers involved you get the, your um, your tie-ins you get your merchandising and all this other stuff tied in it's no longer about making a seminal piece of artwork it's all about merchandising and marketing so he's mad at the whores he's not mad at the art he's just pissed off about consumerism well it's just you're not going to like Martin Scorsese when he makes a film those are all of his decisions as a director that's what ends up on screen but with like a Marvel movie not saying that it can't 
being dramatic, not saying it can't be a form of art. It's somewhat compromised by the studio system and the way these, and like, I mean, think about something like, um, Batman Forever. The reason Batman Forever was made like it was made and why Tim Burton jumped off after Batman Returns is the merchandising of Batman Returns suffered because it was too dark and they literally started in collaboration with the toy companies designing things for the movie so you could sell toys of them later. So it's like you're changing the story to sell toys and that becomes a little less of an artistic expression for a director so i don't think he's 100 percent right but i also don't think he's 100 percent wrong it's not like a 50 50 i think he's more right than he is wrong personally i do for the most part you know agree because i don't watch marvel movies and i have no interest in them mostly because i think they're soulless and kind of consumer pieces for the sake of being consumer pieces but i just find it a little ridiculous getting on the soapbox and shaking your fist at the sky and you know well, they, he's who are you you know he's a boomer what do you expect he's an old yeah. man who's kind of pissy because the thing he loved growing up as a child going to the theater and going to the cinema and having this experience is no longer really relevant to a modern audience because a cinematic experience is now going to be had at home it's gone I mean there's nothing you can do about it and the theatrical thing is more like an amusement park ride it's more like you know it's it's like a different kind of experience it's not about sitting there and learning well, people have definitely forgotten theater etiquette, certainly. Like, it has, it's dreadful going to, and that's my favorite way of seeing a movie. I like to go to the theater and experience it as a whole cinematic thing. But when you're surrounded, well, you're surrounded by a bunch of dunces eating loudly on their phones, either filming the movie or texting people with the volume on, or there's always that one group of people that has to dissect what's going on bit by, what's he doing now? Oh, what's he, who's that? I didn't, who, who, what's their name? And there's just no fun anymore. I mean, maybe if everyone could just shut the fuck up or if I could smoke a cigarette and burn anyone that was close enough to me, it would be a lot more fun. But I don't enjoy things anymore. I don't enjoy stuff. I spent this entire goddamn week watching Stephen King movies, mostly from the 90s, and I'm burned out. First, before we get into the, the Stephen King show, we have to do Recently Seen. We what's, didn't do the Recently Seen yet, Hank. We bitched. What's yours? I am, I'm just dying to find out what you watched this week. <laughs> it's very limited. Uh, but I had seen it before. But I rewatched From a Whisper to a Scream, the Jeff Burr movie from 1987, the anthology film. Uh, I just picked it up off Scream Factory Blu ray. And the disc itself is, I mean, for, for an anthology film from 1987, it's amazingly well structured and a fairly decent movie. Um, the Blu ray itself has a two hour plus documentary about the making of the movie, which is interesting because it was kind of a regional film but not really you gotta tell me what the uh, the parts of this anthology are because I'm sure I know it but I have no recollection Blue of Gulliger the name rapes a corpse and the mm. corpse gives birth to a zombie baby I know Tanner that one Mitchell's in the Civil War yeah uh, he gets burned by a voodoo guy in the swamp Scream Factory put that out nice that's hot I gotta buy that and it's a, it's a I, I picked it up specifically for the documentary but um in itself, what it reminded me more than anything for his, like a very adequate product that it is, uh, Jeff Burr as a director, that guy never got really a good shake. Everything he did, he ended up 
making a lot of sequels to horror films. He made The Stepfather 2, he made Leatherface, he made Puppet Master 4 and 5. Leatherface uh, is in Texas Chainsaw 3 or yes. Leatherface is in the prequel? Okay, that one's not, I don't know, I have weird love for that movie. Jeff Burr is a talented director and he, like, you could, through his films, you can see where his talent, he did Pumpkinhead 2 as well, but, um... Blood Wings, right? Yeah, and he always has gotten fucked with by a studio that he's working for. Like, he came on to Leatherface one week before they started shooting. Stepfather 2 got taken out of his hands by Bob and Harvey Weinstein and re-edited and shit like that, but he's never been given... And I think he's a very competent director who really could have done more, but he just never really got a break. He just kind of got shit on throughout his career. I mean, his last thing, he, he did another film. He did one for Charlie Band. He made a new Puppet Master movie for him. So, I, I mean, he's still working. It's just he's never gotten any actual recognition because most of his movies ended up kind of just being shittier, usually due to budgetary producers and, you know, just numerous different things. But I think he was a good director. He could have really done a lot more stuff. Yeah, the Weinstein certainly fucked with a lot of horror in the 1990s. Uh, I guess I was reading this earlier. Eli Roth was tapped to at one point do a Stephen King adaptation of Cell, and the Weinsteins really wanted to do it one way. And maybe it Eli sucked either way. Yeah, know, but still, maybe Eli could have put some sort of spin to it. I watched a super movie this week. It's not a new one. I keep picking old movies, but that's fine. I watched from 1998, Phantoms by Dean Koontz. <laughs> Oh, Ben Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms. Like a motherfucker. Um, it is a fantastic movie. I thought we'd shake it up just a little bit doing Stephen King week because, uh, you know, Peter O'Toole's in this, Rose I McGowan. Do a movie. Yeah, he, he, we're bringing on Weird Hair Dean. That's what I like to call him. Now, this is for the audience. Go Google Dean Koontz, I don't know, 1980, and look at a photo, an old photo of Dean Koontz, and then type in Dean Koontz now. One thing is not like the other. Something has just drastically changed with Dean Koontz. Maybe he's got a tribble on his head. He looks hysterical. Now that we've gotten that laugh out of the way, we can go back to Phantoms because it's a fucking awesome movie. I still don't exactly know what Phantoms is about. I've seen it like 33 times. I don't think I've ever watched it. Something, something, Satan, Ben Affleck. Uh, Dean Koontz is a really interesting writer because some of his stuff is really, really coherent. Either way, yeah, some stuff happens and Phantoms is pretty... I give it like, I don't know, a star. It's really actually not that good of a movie. My whole joke was... Phantoms, man. I like fandoms. It's an all right movie. My whole joke is just kind of based around Dean Koontz and it's it's run its course. It's not funny anymore. So no, Phantom, I want to talk about fandoms. We can. What are you it's, talking about? You don't know what it is. It's some kind of ancient life form that's been lived. It's lived in the middle of the earth for millennia. And now, it, like after absorbing people's minds and shit over the years of eating them, it thinks it's Satan. So you have to, I don't know. It, it goes places. I find it an interesting movie. You know what I wish had become a movie was TikTok by Dean Koontz. It's about a, a little rag doll that for no reason becomes giant and huge, drives a Mack truck, and kills people. It was the best book to date he's ever written. That sounds amazing. It, it is, and it's it's not at the same time. I don't know. Um, we can segue into a movie that is absolutely <laughs> by no means amazing. Uh, you know, like, just be 
speaking of things that generally aren't good, we could start talking about something. But this is going to be – when we started this and had the idea, I think in my head it, it seemed a lot easier of, you know, this isn't going to be that bad. We're going to do a lot of fun movies. And we both picked and made this list and then looking back at it after, you know, wow, I should have picked some movies I saw this decade that I didn't think were really great when I was 17 because this is going to be like an all-downhill roller coaster. Well, I mean, I, I randomly picked things. I did zero work for this show because I've seen all of these movies a few times at least. Even the bad ones I've seen mostly, except the newer ones I've probably seen once because they were still probably pretty bad. I love it when we do a review and you bring up the fact that it's like, yeah, I saw this in theaters in 93. Like, that was recent. Like, that's going to help. I remember it, though. I remember it down to, like, I've, I've probably seen more often than not most of these movies three or four times. I have seen um, some of them just once, and it is what it is. Are we going to just do cold points and actually review these, or are we going to dissect and break apart the core of Stephen King? Uh, we can do a little bit of both, but, I mean, there's not much to dissect. Most of his ideas are pretty... All the dissecting movies we left out, all, all the, like, really deep movies that we could get into, we didn't really throw on this list. This yeah, is For the most part, I think the first one we'll be talking about is it can be dissected. It's just not very interesting when you dissect it. It's like, all right, whatever. Yeah, a lot of the times with Stephen King, it's a hit or miss that either the movie is going to be more interesting and the book has a lot of issues, like Carrie that we've recently discussed. The book ending is a bit ridiculous and just kind of laughable, but the movie was pretty successful, and De Palma did a really good job wrapping it up and making a more formidable idea. But with this first one that we're going to bring up, I, I believe to right now, this is the newest Stephen King adaptation. Stephen King and Joe Hill in the Telegraphs from 2019 by Vincenzo Natale. And did uh, Cube, uh, the Canadian film Cube and Splice. He's actually done some decent stuff. So Adrian Brown. That's what pulled me in. And this is one of those things that the trailer was great. The trailer sucked me in and I actually called it and sent you a message. Let's throw this on the list and do this. Trailer looked sweet. Then I sat down and I watched it. I looked up, I'll admit when I, when I have read something and when I haven't read something, I looked up the novella that this was based on by now, Vincenzo rewrote this. It's his script also. So Stephen and um, Joe Hill, his son, Stephen King's son, little kid from Creepshow. It's funny, people for years didn't put together who that is. But, you know, Stephen often talked about his child starring in Creepshow as a little boy. And he's credited as Joe Hill. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too deep into it and expecting too much out of people. But they and their novella made a lot more sense than what ended up happening on screen with this depiction. And it, it's I don't know. It's a time travel thing. General premise. Like people get stuck in this field full of very tall grass or corn because apparently Stephen King can't have any original ideas. Um, but no, it's, it's explicitly the the name of the movie itself too. I think was even one of the more annoying parts of like don't mistake this with corn. Okay, this isn't this isn't a prequel or a sequel. It's just grass. It's my kid helped me write this. I'm not rewriting shit. It's not Children of the Corn, and they really emphasize it. Like, hey, there's a little kid in this movie, but he's not of the grass. He's not the kid's grass. He's not anybody 
anybody's grass. He's just a kid. There's no cornery. There's no children. It's all good. But, but basically, people go into this grass because they hear people calling out for help because they, they themselves are lost in this tall grass. And people go in to look for them. And the general premise here is once you go into the grass, time no longer matters. Uh, directions no longer matter. You can't get out of the grass. Um, people sound like they're coming from all directions because the grass is always changing where you're at. And, then, and there's grass people. And then you start to slowly find out that there are fucking basically wormholes within the grass and there's a meteor that apparently landed there ages ago before the Indians. And You're giving it more credit though because they don't say it's a no, meteor. It's this just is stuff I had to pick out of it because I mean, there's carvings on it and you can say it's probably prehistoric in some way. And it they're the church, it's named like the Church of the Black Rock or something. Oh, across what's his nuts? Uh, Patrick Wilson says yeah. something I thought somewhat prominent toward the middle of the movie after, you know, you find out more about his character. And he's like, this is not just the middle, but the middle of the middle of the Midwest and the middle and the middle of the middle of the middle. And I guess they were trying to emphasize that maybe it was like, and this was a fan theory I read, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I wish I could give credit to who wrote it. I feel like an ass now, but fuck them. That it's like the inversion of like luck or like the inversion, like Satan's version of the tree of knowledge. So like the inversion of the tree of knowledge sort of thing. I like that. And yes, it's kind of like the tree. Um, yeah, you touch it, it tells you stuff. And like, the, the, I guess the rock is went in souls, and it makes Patrick Wilson go crazy. And then there's time hopping; Pete characters die. I don't think it makes you back. go crazy, but I think when you touch it, it makes you like your your unembodied you self, a, a prophet of the rock. Become- hypnotized by the rock and like it's, a shadow it's, self it's god and patrick wilson goes nuts because he's finally find found his true calling and basically you have uh, well they allude also that patrick wilson and his family are very deeply religious that he makes a bunch of comments about jesus there is no character development that's it a pregnant girl really obsessive boy uh, brother randomly the boyfriend has been following them that makes sense later it's explained and then that's it that's your characters one maybe he's a dick patrick wilson i think delivers the most character like background even makes a joke like what are you in a four piece band and the guy says yes so you get maybe some relation to who these people are but all in all it's just kind of a blur which is a shame because usually like Stephen King has really in-depth characters and Joe Hill also I've only read Heart-Shaped Box but Joe Hill is very similar stylistically to his father and he doesn't really skimp when it comes to characters because it it really doesn't have too much to do with the characters or even the rock or even the grass it's all about finding redemption for mistakes you've made and basically the re- repetition of time is you, you can do things differently this time and blah 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 and I mean this is a set well, set apart from the actual meat of the story this is like the, like more on the outside of what the story is about it's all about redemption and all this shit and it's just like I don't particularly care and if you can do that if you want to make this story about redemption but you need to fill in some gaps you need to fill in like I'm not much for the like, I, we always joke on the show that Hank um, wants to know where Leatherface grew up and more about the family and all that kind of stuff. And I've always been like, well, it's more mysterious and it's better that way when you don't know. Well, I will say that's antithetical to In the Tall Grass because yeah. you have to, like, you can't put out a premise, like this weird kind of sci-fi type premise, and then just go, I don't know. It's something. You can ascertain that the rock fell to Earth is a meteor or something. Okay, but, like, 
why what what is anything going on hey man it's just it's about this guy learning from his mistakes i understand but okay yeah that's the problem it's just not enough information they're trying to make it about heart and the idea of redemption and finding out where you've wronged people in the past and all that but like it doesn't mesh with the story of what the hell's going on in the weeds because I would like to know what's going on in this grass. I would like to know is it an alien? What the fuck is it? Ah, fuck it, whatever. It's on the back of a turtle. It's like it's that kind of shit. It's like when Stephen King gets metaphysical and it's like you're not very good at this part, dude. Just make it like a fucking giant bat. Well, that's where things get interesting with Stephen King, and uh, I, I guess the show starts to slowly go downhill. That Steve was massively addicted to coke for, I think, you know, the better part of the '70s and the it's '80s. More creative then. Well, it's not even so much creative; it's just wild coke paranoid delusions. Like, God damn it, you know, it would be fucking terrifying. Uh, a vampire, but it has a plane killer laundromat, la- uh, laundry machines killing people. Yes, like deathbed the bed, dead. Ah, fuck, deathbed the bed that eats people very well could have been a Stephen King story and if it had been it would have absolutely sold like nobody would have questioned how oh, bad well, hold on Deathbed actually has some depth to it to the story itself that Stephen it's, King can never come up with himself it's oddly not all about a deathbed that eats people it's got a lot of background story with weird character development that is a great movie to go check out that should be the emphasis of this show watch Deathbed the bed that eats people but it's just really weird blurred lines of, of what's real and what isn't and a lot of these stories, King himself comes back and says, you know, like, I don't fucking know. I don't know when I wrote it or how I wrote it or what was on my mind. All I remember is my car was breaking down and this story has a car that's breaking down in it. So did a lot of drugs. Then he cleaned his act up and more things uh, become about human development, fighting inner demons, obvious references to his struggle in life. But to me, it just becomes more vague. Like there's a lot of recent Stephen King stuff I enjoy, like the girl who loves Tom Gordon. I thought that was a really fun book. I enjoyed reading Dr. Sleep, but I'm going to dread watching this goddamn movie. The fear is gone. The childhood aspect. I mean, that was a big thing with Stephen King, too, is things from the point of view of children and fear from a child's aspect and just something. I'm not saying go start gacking lines, Steezy. When he was gacking fat lines, I don't know. I'm not. Trucks isn't that great. Maximum Overdrive is not that great. But those those stories can be fun. They can be interpreted as something fun. And this seems overly pre. This is grueling. And like it's almost like his version of a Kurt Vonnegut story, but he's not that clever. Whereas Kurt Vonnegut can make this idea like a very clever idea. Yeah, he would have taken us to Traflagar and back, and it would have been full of irony and full of actually thoughtful things. He might have not explained all of his sci-fi stuff in his books, but at least he like it's a character-driven piece. And with Stephen King, none of this works in his favor. It's just vague for the purpose of I don't want to figure this out, which is a reoccurring theme with Stephen King when he gets to the end of like what the fuck has been going he on he doesn't end it all this amorphous stuff that you've been talking about this entire time I don't know something I mean, even massively high on amphetamines, though, like, go back to, like, we mentioned with Carrie, it was a bit of a ridiculous ending. Most all of his novels had pretty cheap endings. Christine ended dumb. Like, the car is still driving around the country to this day, and the lead character reads in the newspaper that one of the bullies was run down, and now he's afraid it's coming for him some 40 years later. Like, that's an awful ending. Jarpenter did a pretty good job wrapping it up, and in most cases, these stories are wrapped up better with their film translation. 
situation. And in this instance, not, from the Darabont is a master at taking Stephen King's bullshit endings and then turning them into something that is like cinematically rewarding. Well, even more astounding for Frank Darabont is the fact that he, for the most part, takes shorts and uses those. Like, it's not like he's taken. I mean, the Green Mile is pretty lengthy, but all in all, it was released as shorts, and he tra- translated that again fairly well. And it's just the atmosphere and the environment working with a dramatic story. Frank Darabont knows how to pull heartstrings. He knows what part of the story is really Let's important. Rock that man. Yeah, I mean, like uh, the Green Mile again is a reference. There, he he, the mouse is more of an integral part of the story than any other character. And you get upset when John Coffey's executed, but when that goddamn mouse dies, that's the worst part of the movie. And that's filmmaking. He managed to make such an insignificant thing like Mr. Jingles the most important part of the story. Frank Darabont, if he'd have directed this, it might have been. I mean, I'm not blaming it on anyone. It's got a concept. It's got a cool concept behind it, and it just you doesn't deliver. Concept out. You got like, and that was basically how like about like probably an hour in to the movie, I was like, this has the potential of being one of the best Stephen King movies ever. Yeah, if it goes somewhere. The last 45 minutes, I was just like, no, this is garbage. It is, it's worthless. I mean, I've, what, what is this ending? This sucks. I like, that's how, how hard I turned on the movie. I was like, this could be really interesting, really effective, but it's not at all because you didn't know where to take it at all. You had a concept and you had no, like, no way of pushing it forward. He just doesn't sometimes. And this is one of those times. Well, it becomes almost a constant with Stephen King experiences that you will realize there's about eight minutes of runtime left and about three hours worth of explaining. And, you know, you got to deal with it one way or the other. And it wraps up generally pretty poorly. I think almost everything we're going to end up talking about has a pretty awful ending. There's a few occurrences that the book or the short story is a lot more coherent. But that it's such a 50-50 mix. It's really tossing just everything up into the air and seeing how it lands, which sometimes I wonder if that's King's writing style now. And this doesn't, I like, I don't, I, I just want to, like, I guess, preface that we're not trying to specifically be assholes. It just comes naturally to both of us. I, I, I immersed myself in it this week. You didn't. So this is your lifelong opinions. And this is I've a week always of- known since, like, I, in the 80s, I was like one of those, oh, Stephen King's a god. But deep down, I knew it's just like, oh, this isn't very good. And then every movie would come out, I was like, that's not a very good movie either. I think, unfortunately, you get to a point of, I don't want to say maturity, but maybe you grow with what you read and what you consume and what you think is visually or um, mentally horrifying. And it just starts to wear off a lot of like Stephen King's pulls and what he uses to drag you in. Like, oh, you're going to have another kid raped again or another child molester drunk dad. And it just tends to be the same tropes over and over and over again. And there's only so many times I can be upset by the same thing until it loses its effect and originality and you get kind of worn out about it when it was killer laundry machines and killer cars Steven seems to have a big thing about things becoming other things like Christine it's a car and it's gonna kill people he probably ran across a laundry machine like a, a like a pressing machine at some point in his life and he looked at it and went man I wonder what it'd be like if you get your hands stuck in there better rip it right off oh shit it's just he notices things in life and he writes kind of very mediocre fiction around those ideas that he pops into his head. He basically, he doesn't have a, a good screen, for, but a lot of that has to do with how much work he actually has to produce 
due to contractual obligations and him as an artist and blah, blah, blah. It's like, he has to write so many books every so often. So it's just like, boom, let's just go. It doesn't matter. People will buy it. Well, too, when you're gacked out on speed, not that I'm speaking from experience, a lot of things become a lot of different things. So, you know, a laundry machine can be really terrifying depending on how long you've been awake or if the shadow people have visited you yet. There's a lot of various levels to amphetamine addiction that really pushed, you know? Think about, like, you're sitting there in the middle of winter. It's cold in your house. And you look at the space heater you have, and out of the corner of your eye, it kind of looks like a monster. Those dials kind of look like eyes. And you've been doing coke for nine days straight. And the mouth looks like hellfire. And I've just written a Stephen King story about some dude who's stuck in a cabin and his fucking radiator comes to light. It's just, that's just as basic as it comes. And I'm not, like, shitting on Stephen King because a good well what I'm saying is <laughs> a good portion of America reading which is good but Stephen King is honestly an author for people who don't like to read he just is I mean I'll read this this is interesting and I find this is like this could be scary but they're very base ideas and concepts when you get into other authors and you get into like I mean the same thing can go even be said for Chuck Palahniuk who's like I've enjoyed plenty of his books but a lot of I've been a lifelong fan of certain people who yeah. don't like to read the last 20 years or so. So, I mean, anybody can be chalked up that same way, though. Like Clive Barker's output isn't the same. It used to be Jack Ketchum, yeah. unfortunately, has died. But I, I will steadily say from the first book he wrote to the last, Jack Ketchum was a force to reckon with. And one of the greatest American writers to me of all times. And, you know, I, that's ranking up there with guys like Hemingway or whatever. But I loved Jack Ketchum. I thought he was one of the most frightening creative people. And he does. He, he did things very similar to Stephen King. At, at its core, Stephen King takes what's terrifying and anxiety writing and what can cause just a normal person to think, ooh, that's scary. And like you just said with, you know, your whole euphemism, transform it into something completely different. But Jack Ketchum, I guess, was much more of an animal. He just had rip it apart, kill it, violence. And something about that translated into how he delicately worded things was just great. I sorely miss Jack Ketchum. He was, I I really think, probably my favorite horror writer of all time. I really love Jack Ketchum. And Stephen King often complimented him. I don't know how deep of a friendship the two had, but comparatively, they're very, very similar writers. But Stephen just, I don't know, I I feel is maybe just his brain is like just a supercomputer and it doesn't stop that he'll have an idea from 35 years ago and connect it into something new and expand this whole universe. He's, he's like Tolkien. He has that ability to just make massive, massive, massive stories. And it appeals to some people and it's, you know, life for some people. They absolutely worship Stephen King and think he's the greatest thing on earth. I've never read the stand. I've never read the dark tower series. It's just never called my name. I've tried to start the dark tower a few times and it's just, it's not my cup of tea. And I think that's what really Stephen King is. He's some people's cup of teas, other people's, you know, dreaded, I God, this is another Stephen King thing. I'm in the middle. I, I like him fair enough. I haven't read a new Stephen King book in quite some time. I actually just purchased his new book um, because we were doing this and it was on sale and it's a big, glossy, nice looking hardback. But in fault, I think of, of anything after what you're 70 years old and you're still doing this, you can't help but get a little repetitive. So you got to take things with a grain of salt. You know, if you're a new Stephen King fan, these are new 
new ideas to you. If you're under 30, a lot of these concepts you might not be super familiar with. And that's fun. It's a whole new generation. Again, like you pointed out of people reading and that's great. America needs to read. Fuck make America great again. Make America read again. That's a statement everyone should get behind. So, you know, big kudos on that. It's just, it, to me, I've worn, it, it wore off, you know, I, I guess my childhood fears left as I grew up. So what Stephen King really focuses on and is enamored with, it seems like is things that scare you or could scare you as a child. And they just don't affect me anymore. A very long winded Stephen King statement, but totally not about the movie, but still we're, we're, <laughs> we're talking about Steve Z. Yeah. We'll be talking about a lot of Stephen King's and faults and stuff. The thing with Stephen King, he will always be hit or miss because he has had so much product over the years, but sometimes he hits and he is really good at hitting. And sometimes it's just much like most authors and books. They, some of them don't adapt well to film or you have to change them to adapt them to film. So it's like it's filmic because some books, I'm sure the way Stephen King writes it, it makes it very atmospheric. But when he put it on the silver screen, even like um, a movie we'll be talking about a little bit later, um, Silver Bullet, the story feels and then when you make it a movie, it's really goofy. We said we weren't going to talk about The Shining, but we can fit in a little bit here. The book is... Uh, it's not boring. There's a part of the book that scares me any, uh, twice as much as anything in the Kubrick film. But it, it's a bit quaint, and it's a bit dreary. A lot of the characters aren't believable. What Kubrick brought to the table and did for the film is a much better... Tangible reality. King himself hates the Kubrick product, and, uh, you know... It's wrong. Yeah, he's absolutely wrong. Uh, the miniseries is what it is. It's very faithful. It's a, And it's still good. It's still a great story, but there's just a lot of things lacking, and what that is, and we've discussed this a lot, lot is being able to take a story let's use midsummer as a reference being able to take a story and fitting goddamn everything into it there's this new big director's cut that you can only get on apple tv of midsummer it's not going to be on the blu-ray you have to wait for a special edition for it but what's the necessity of all that outside of being a money grab if you can perfectly and you're the greatest write and direct a movie then it's something like what stanley kubrick did with the shining he took this source material he rewrote it he cut it down and he made what was integral and important and put it in the script, shot it, and it is one of the most legendary, effective horror pictures of all time because he fucking shot what he needed to shoot. Why? I just did the concept of well, not shooting you, what you need to shoot is. Kubrick and King viewed that story completely different because Stephen King's whole idea was an idea of redemption and which Cooper's yeah it always about is. damnation it was not a, a movie about redemption in any way shape or form and that's what really pisses Stephen King off because he Stephen King writes a lot of himself into his books believe it or not and at the time he was having a problem with alcohol and he was a writer and stuck in a fucking hotel I think most writers you know most people that have to put out as much product per se let's not just say writers in general but King had to even then put out quite a lot of product. Well, I, I think they put a lot of themselves into characters because it's easy to, and especially if you have substance abuse. See from well, your own point of view. Well, not even just that. If you have a substance abuse problem and you're mad at yourself or you regret decisions that a past self has made, essentially that's a different reality or version of you. So being able to kill yourself or fight yourself or, you know, fight your father. Well, in the story is almost a masturbatory fantasy of an alcoholic writer sacrificing himself for his family. 
when he's just kind of a, a, a drunk and has no redemption up to that point. And Kubrick said, no, there's no redemption. He's just a drunk and he's kind of an asshole. And Keem's like, but I'm, I'm not an asshole, am I? I mean, in, kind my of, mind, I, in my mind, I wanted to kill myself to protect my family. But you didn't, and you were probably well, kind opinion, of an asshole. Opinion in The Shining for him and Kubrick is just Kubrick. I personally think he was making a movie about more than anything was about spousal abuse, mythical mm-hmm. amount of bullshit. Well, I mean, we're not trying to get like autobiographical or pointing fingers at Stephen King, but one thing, again, like the show and our opinions and our point of views on this, one thing that's forever about art is the opinion base on it, and any any one person is going to form a different opinion. So this filmmaker. Drew an outside perspective So King wrote this based on himself And had this whole almost hero thing Where somebody else watching it And when I read The Shining Jack's an asshole he, He's a dick He's an he's, asshole Yeah, I'm sorry you, you might have been an asshole In the mid-70s, Steve But this specific character That is a personification of yourself Is a dick That's what people took away from it And that's what was represented Because what makes a movie Is trying to represent The feelings and the emotions But in a moving picture So you have to make Guy Trump, but I'll kill myself for my family. That just okay. sounds like gaslighting and abusive. Like that's <laughs> basically what I interpret from the book, The Shining. It's like, well, you're just so mean to me, and like, I, I know I beat the shit out of you, but I'll kill myself for this family if I have to. And now you'll have to, for the rest of your life, walk around. Oh, my dad killed himself for me. Like, oh no! Now you're just making. Now you've turned your kid essentially, which is funny because Doctor Sleep, Stephen King followed his ritual with it. The kid becomes a hopeless drunk. Because that's what happened in his life That's And that's like oh, We can transgress like, We can move into our next piece Our next wonderful Stephen King thing here I This was during a Coke era And this is a short story And I picked this specifically Because I like Miguel Ferrer We're going to talk about Night Flyer 1997 <laughs> Yeah, this list does not pull any punches This is by Mark Pavia? Pavia? I, have I don't remember It premiered on HBO That's what I remembered yeah, it was ill-fated to have a sequel that King wanted to do in the 2000s that focused more on the female character and going into the origins of the Night Flyer. But this, to me, is the epitome of a fucking cocaine fever dream. Yes. Like this. Uh, okay, it's a vampire, right? And you know how vampires can turn into vampire bats and they can fly? What if the vampire also had a plane? Yeah. It's full of dirt because, you know, Nosferatu. But he can fly and he can also fly because he's this is just like the like top of the line of somebody doing an eight ball a goddamn hour filled with PBR and Paul Malls just raring to go in the middle of the night. And I, I love it. The movie translates to... I like the movie personally. I, I love it, yeah. It's, it's so dated. It is so 90s. It's 1997, so it's that weird period where it still kind of looks like 1987. It's definitely a dark period for Stephen King. His name wasn't a big draw at the movie theater anymore, so you, ran, you rarely got like Stephen King movies at this point they're usually pretty cheap this is when we were doing a lot of uh tv mcgarris uh, Stephen King movies, a lot of Tommy knockers. And- well, horror had kind of just died at this point. I mean, Scream and the the neo slasher, everybody's in their 30s playing teenager wave was very brief and then you had the outskirts of things like uh, Urban Legends and all of that fun, the the Cupid movie I always forget the name yeah, of the people time. Were interested in the, um, the metaphysical or Well, that's what I mean. The whole genre was, was much more, uh, I hate using the term progressive 
progressive, but for the time, what they felt was progressive. Just, you know, young audiences, everyone's in Tommy Hilfiger and sweater vests, and this just wasn't a sellable product. And Miguel Ferrer... star is Miguel Ferrer, for Christ's sakes. A bald asshole. Who's known for playing assholes. Yeah, that's pretty much it, too. Like, that's the draw. Like, okay, Miguel Ferrer is going to be especially pricky in this one. He plays a writer, so you know he's going to be drunk and smoking it up. And that's that's really the pull-in for this movie. I loved Miguel Ferrer. And it, awesome. Yeah, it was. That's one of the very, very few people in the last few years that has passed away that I felt a tear roll down my cheek. Like, God damn, Miguel Ferrer's gone. What a shame. And his performance generally is always a curmudgeon, miserable, chain smoking piece of shit. And apparently he was one of the most brightest, shining people. Just a very lovely, incredible guy. Well, what like is troublesome about the Nightflyer for me personally is see a short story and for it to premiere on HBO, for it to star Miguel Ferrer, it feels like a very long-winded, extended episode of Tales from the Crypt. It's even shot like an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Long. It really needs to be shortened down. Maybe done as like a, a, a TV for an or like a, for a TV show or like a Tales from the Dark Side episode or something. Well, it's got that ever-driving soundtrack too that plays and makes you feel like you're watching a TV show and you're just waiting the entire movie for it to kind of go to like part two. Like you know, you're expecting it to be a three, four-part long-winded thing like the. Uh, the it miniseries that Tommy Lee Wallace did back in the early 90s and it just ends in a vampire in a plane yeah and like it (laughs) It ends nowhere it's one of those things that like I brought up earlier you realize you've got about like nine minutes of runtime left they've explained absolutely anything and then it hits you like damn this movie was just about a vampire that had a plane wasn't it shit Deeper. A thing about like a um... well, there's self discovery. You have to realize that because the character is abusive to his coworker and continuously says, "If it's gonna be, if it's gonna be me or you, I'm gonna come out on the top." That's an awful Miguel Ferrer. But give me like ten more years of smoking, I might be there. When you but have like, has, a character, like, he's a like dick, this. so he has to like get his come up. Yeah, that's, and that's kind of my point, though. It's kind of hard for me to have any sort of empathy throughout this film or have any sort of feels at all when from the outskirts of this movie he's an asshole and then you don't like him and you're going to eventually see him get his comeuppance but I need that in a shortened form as opposed to an hour and a half movie where he constantly goes to an airport that's been fucking slaughtered over and over again and he checks data and all it's like it's not particularly engaging like I mentioned earlier there's just certain types of people that really relate and get off on on Stephen King material and sometimes and I you know I'll say this because I'll defend it with, with it being you know partially true with myself I think a lot of assholes tend to relate to Stephen King material more because he writes from the heart and a lot of characters are based on him from when he, you know, had a lot of substance abuse problems and was a bit of an asshole. Most people are assholes. So like this Miguel Ferrer character, I instantly liked him because I related to him. I get it. Works for tabloids for Christ's sakes. Well, I mean, I get what what he does. I get just trying to come up with stuff to talk about, but he's a dick. And I, I don't know. I've been regularly accused of not having the great personality but I get you know yeah I get a bit of, of where <laughs> I, I might be a little bit of an asshole and insensitive but I get it you know and that's what the character is supposed to embody this like trope of a writer he's burned out that it's just this bitter 
nerd tough guy. The problems I have with the movie is like it immediately is like, well, you've got a plane, so you should just go take this job. What do you mean he has a plane? Are, okay. And it just goes into this weird, like, Jewel of the Nile travel thing of like, all right, Miguel Ferrer's just flying around like fucking Cooper in Twin Peaks talking to his microphone, and he lands, there's a bloodbath, and it slowly turns into this, like, wannabe film noir idea of them sleuthing around and figuring out who the vampire ends is. And then it ends. It just ends. He gets to Delaware and it ends, which happens a lot when you go to Delaware. Things just fucking end because there's nothing to do in Delaware. I do find it interesting that the ultimate design they use for the vampire is Dracula with a cape, which is goofy in itself. But like when he shows his his manifestation of his monstrous self, that's a type it's a one. weird bat creature face with one giant tooth. Oh my man, uh, we got to spend time on this. Unfortunately, that's called a type one. There are three what? types technically of Stephen King vampires. There's a type uh, one, which can God. live thousands of years and go dormant for hundreds, and they're huge and horrific. Um, Kurt Barlow from Salem's Lots, a type one. He didn't have one giant fang, though. That's he, the weird, troubling part. He had the two big fangs, but as King describes them, they have like four-inch giant fangs that leave like railroad spikes in your throat. Then a type two is someone bitten by them that isn't as horrific. A type three is like a normal person, but they can't turn people into vampires. Sunlight doesn't bother them, and you can just shoot them and kill them. And these also all move into Stephen King's Dark Tower series, where they have different powers. He has psychic vampires. He has emotional psychic vampires. There's uh, the, the universe of Stephen King again. It's it's a an apt reference comparing him to somebody like Tolkien. Because if you wanted to, if you had no if you had no knowledge of Stephen King before like right now, and you sat down and found some, which I'm sure exists, a Stephen King omnibus or something of his universe, it would take you. Wiki or whatever it would be. Wiki. Yeah, I guess people wouldn't go buy a book at a bookstore about Stephen King. They'd get on the internet, but it would take you just ages to get to the bottom of who's from what and what universe is which, that it's just all over the place. So there are there's three vampires. This is a type one. And I that's one of the things that draws me into Stephen King. I love I don't know. I, I'm a, I'm cheaply entertained, I guess, is what you, you would say. I love when it's, oh, well, this character was in this book for a couple seconds and this was the sheriff from whatever and this car was in that and I get off on it. I, I like feeling like I'm astute and picking out references so that tickles my I like a lot of pointless detail and cameos. Well, uh, when it comes to the writing, a lot of the pointless detail and, I guess, an insult to Stephen King is covering up a lot of lack of story. So it's, hey, remember this character who was in this? Well, here's him. He's too. In the tall grass, did you notice um, at the church what was in the parking lot? Yeah, Plymouth Fury. Yeah, because Stephen King. Woo! And it, you find out, like, one character's dad is somebody else in the Korean War, and then the, the writer from Misery briefly makes an appearance. I enjoy that when it's not long Winded, when it's just a random character that's somewhat mentioned, like uh, Dees is mentioned, the, the the character from Night Flyer is mentioned in another Stephen King story, and I can't recall what it is. He's a, in a brief appearance, but it's just fun for me, and I think that's a big 
atmosphere that Stephen King tries to always provide is it might be horrific and there could be children getting eaten, but I'm going to make it fun. Well, for Night Flyer, I would say what it is a fun movie and a lot of the fun is derived because it's trash. And I like that because I think, I think a lot King of the movies fun are is best handled when they are treated like trash. For the mo- I know this sounds really bad, but I'm not trying to shit on Stephen King. What I'm saying is when you make an exploitation film out of it, I think it can be really, really good sometimes because I can enjoy it. all of your misnomers and mishandling of your fucking well, story a, and plot details. Point. I can just kind of throw it to the wayside and go, eh, it's just an exploitation movie. It's trash. Well, that's something, that's a, a, a term that maybe we should deeply acknowledge here that Stephen King, there's splatterpunk and a lot of people are familiar with that. And I don't really think Stephen King's a splatterpunk writer, but he's uh, an exploitation. He kind of started splatterpunk. Yeah, but I, I would say, if anything, he's an exploitation writer. Like oh, that's yes, most definitely. I'm just saying, like, the, if there was no Stephen King, there would be no splatterpunk. I, I wouldn't fit him into the splatterpunk author. Well, I mean, like, as a core, though, when you watch an exploitation movie, you're not going to sit and review and rate it next to an Orson Welles movie or a Laurence Olivier movie or a, a fucking Ken Russell movie, even though The Devils is, to an extent, exploitation. You look at it in a different light. You're not going to put Lucio Fulci up next to Martin Scorsese. So judging things with the terminology exploitation allows you to maybe look at Stephen King with a little bit more light. You know, maybe not. I mean, because I feel that we're, like, really judgmental, but we're not trying trying to be like i said specifically assholes on the subject it's just oh, it's a rough list that's a <laughs> like because i love night flyers and i love how dated it feels but this isn't like palatable to everybody like you're not gonna have a successful time trying to get five friends to watch this movie with you i, can, tell you, uh, I can frame it like this um i think night flyer is an incredibly successful piece of kind of exploitation cinema with good acting and you know and some good gore and some good chills and thrills and all the horror stuff but at the end of the day the weakest part of that film is the original short story it's based on let's go back we didn't do cult points for in the tall grass let's rate this and and what do you what do you feel for in the tall grass for a cult point Uh, it would get a two out of five overall and probably a uh, maybe two and a half cult points just because it's Stephen King. I'm, I'm a little bit more negative. I'm just going to give it two out of everything because it's a great collaboration with him and Joe Hill. I enjoyed reading the Wikipedia article about the short story more than I did the 90 minutes I lost watching the movie. And that's at no one's fault. It's a stylistic movie. It looks good. It's, it's well acted. It has great sound design. It was really fun to listen to. Didn't enjoy probably past the first five minutes of the movie. I started to get annoyed. That sucks that's a bad experience but whatever uh this i will (laughs) i'm just gonna give all the really like shithouse rats of a movie high ratings and all the really well produced and well done movies i would say the night flyer is three and three i will give it i'll give it a three and a half and that's mainly because miguel ferrer is especially fine he's at a robocop level of nasty in this movie and i love it all right what's next on the list okay moving on all right, we'll, we'll, we'll do a, a okay one. I won't say it's good. We'll do an okay one. 
do Cujo. You want to talk about that? Cujo. Louis Teague, like man. The better Stephen King movies, yeah. Um, Louis Teague did two movies that we'll eventually be talking about tonight, but most importantly, he did Jewel of the Nile and a little movie called Navy Seals. And if that doesn't tell you that this man knows what he's talking about, I'm just going to stop. I can't even finish this joke. Navy Seals. <laughs> Fucking Navy Seals joke. I even have that written down. Don't forget the Navy Seals joke. I think the only, <laughs> like, the thing that works with Cujo and it's about everybody knows what Cujo is about St. Bernard rabies has a mother and her asthmatic son trapped in a car that's what works in the car and the way they film it the way Wall Stone acts it the heat that's present was she Stone at this time or was she just D. Wallace there's such a difference I know I don't know the thing that bothers me the most about this is it's supposed to be a story about people changing that it's not that she's a negligent mother but if it wasn't for her having an affair on her husband who seemingly is doing absolutely nothing to deserve such treatment outside of she's he's not home enough there's a specific part where he has to take the cars to get worked on they take one car they get it worked on he catches her in cheating fighting with her boyfriend at their home forgets to take the second car in so if she hadn't been slobbing willy when she shouldn't have been at the milkshake stand the pinto would have gotten worked on none of this would happen and the disappointment is like you said we all know cujo spoiler alert the kid lives that's a problem what Why is that made, a problem? Because that's what makes the story effective Is their child dies Because of this But in the book They stay together And they they learn to relive And to forgive And to move on Which is a really important part of life That most people forget about That you need to forgive And move on from the things That have destroyed you And let things go No matter how bad it is And then the little boy The the mechanic's son gets a new puppy and that's how I, it's it's the circle of life time is a flat circle things will continue to repeat okay. themselves that i really enjoyed I think all the, the, the melodrama in cujo is oh, we're gonna argue interesting thing about the film or the book it's honestly ridiculous it's a bit pedantic with so all this just want detail a, of bullshit i don't care i don't care about no, her no, husband and her affair you just want a dog stuff. then you just want dog no, 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 the dog but what i want is i want them to shoot an entire movie where two people are trapped in a car i find that amazing like i think that is an interesting concept but well, the rest if, of if we it, could it, get what we wanted drags, yeah it drags so much and you know like what 45 minutes an hour in is when you actually get things happening in Cujo up. 30 minutes into the movie they finally uh, start splitting up and they leave for the house what I appreciate about the build up is I guess putting the blame on somebody and that does seem to be another theme we'll get into another movie in a little bit that puts the blame on people well, or her fault because she wanted some dick she's got to be punished for it well you have to make that your relationship then if the other person is you know thinking everything's okay Okay and is working really hard to make life okay and comes home and finds he's sucking somebody else's dick, he handled it correctly. He didn't go off the wall or hurtful. He went to work and dealt with it and came back and saved the day. But I think what really drives it is she had made a mistake with someone that she loved and knew that they were hurt over it. They ended up losing their child completely because of everyone's actions involved and they still managed to stay together at the end of the day because they learned to forgive and move on. And that life has to You have to live You have to survive The whole point is survival The movie to me is Well they're okay. stuck in a car now And the kid well, lives It's all okay This is the difference of opinion um, We get 90 minutes of Somebody's trapped in a car Just to kill the dog The kid lives Everything's okay So I just yeah, so watched sure. this 
Yeah, well, it's a pressure cooker, but I just watched this essentially to watch the fucking dog die. Like, that's, I don't feel that's the point of, it's an evil villain. It's not like Jaws. It's not some crazed animal. He got rabies. It sucks. That's not fair. It's specifically a crazed animal. Yeah, but it's not his fault. Like, Jaws is just this killer fish on the run. Shit happens in life. But you hate Jaws. You hate the fish. You're not supposed to hate Cujo. It's it's not the dog's fault. Jaws is a dick, you know? Like, Bruce, I guess, was its name. (laughs) Jaws a dick. He's just living, man. He's not trying to be a dick. He's yeah, but he's fucking giant and he's killing people. They make it seem like it's this ferocious killing the machine. They make it seem like it's this awful experience as to where Cujo and I think King's book, especially the kid getting a dog at the end, his point was life goes on. It's not anybody's fault. It's not your fault. The dog's fault. Shit happens. The movie villainizes the dog and turns it into it's uh, Cujo has to be killed. Now that it's over, everybody's okay. We can move on. Uh, anyway, man. Yeah, but he's, he's that's, got rabies. But the point shouldn't be killing Cujo, is my point. That the movie is just driven on killing fucking the dog. The book is not about killing the dog. I don't think dog. it, no, I don't see, you seem to think it's driven on, like, she's got to kill this fucking dog, man. And yeah, because the, the kid will die if she doesn't kill the dog. She's got to do something. She's got to get the fuck out of there. It's not about killing the dog or not killing the dog. It just has to be the ultimate end. To but that's what makes her happen. snap in the book. She goes to kill the dog to save her kid, and the kid fucking dies anyhow and she keeps fighting and it's keeping its survival it's like Night of the Living Dead no matter what you have to keep surviving don't be a Barbara Mm, and she does that in the movie as well, though. I mean, yeah, but the kid lives, and everything's okay, and everyone's happy. You can't be happy. I don't want them to be happy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> don't want any happiness. God damn it, maybe the kid has like, to die. Maybe she learned a lesson with a kid living, and her husband, her. Oh, you should have done pet Maybe she fucking leaves him because obviously she wasn't interested in as much anymore anyway. So she might like move on to a new relationship where she's even happier. I don't think that's the point. I think it. She doesn't want to talk to him about the problem. She doesn't want to express what it is, so she started a love affair, and how does he handle it? Um... I, what do you mean? How did he handle the situation? Who the did he hit her? Did he go crazy? Did he go batshit? Did he abuse her? He just dealt with Congratulations it. Congratulations on acting human. But that's the point of the story is people's behavior and them not acting human and things happening because of how things happen. And it's a reactionary thing. It's not about punishment. It's these all this chain of events happened because you did this. You didn't want to deal with talking about things. And now you have to deal with it. But they do, and they move on, and they move forward as to where in the book it's like everybody's happy, so because of this traumatic experience, we're all going to get back together and be a core unit family. Fuck that mechanic that got eaten. And that guy. That other guy that got eaten, too. And the sheriff. Fuck all of them. sort of Peter ran? I don't understand what you're talking about. It's not about the dog, goddammit. Obviously it's- it is, because you're very pissed that they had to kill the dog. It's got rabies. It's no, I'm pissed, I'm pissed that they didn't kill the kid. That's the <laughs> It's knowing that she made poor choices. God damn it. That's the book. That's what he did in the book. That was a poor choice. Why is it? Why is her having an affair a poor choice? Because the kid dies. That has nothing to do with the affair. But if 
she hadn't had the affair, the Pinto would have been worked on. What if she hadn't had the like the affair? Like maybe she had the affair earlier and she doesn't have a kid. That's just random chance shit happening. Yeah, but she has a kid and she has an affair, and the husband's gonna get the Pinto worked on, but he no, gets upset and decides to go to work. No, it's don't have moral. an affair if you have a Pinto that needs to be worked on. That's the moral. It's Dude, about the. You <laughs> should be alive if you have a Pinto. I mean, that, that's just stupid. Well, you might be a collector of classics and, and have older cars, but at the moral of the goddamn story is the Pinto and the kid needed to die. <laughs> if you, you're just messing me all up, man. Because I'm not messing you up. You have an opinion. I'm saying your opinion is your opinion, but I think it's whacked. You're taking my opinion and you're making it not about the Pinto and the kid. It's not no. about Pete. I eat dog every now and again. I don't care. Oh, I mean... <laughs> Let's talk about that for a second. I, I meant to say I eat meat, but oh, and you eat dog. And eat uh, dog admitted yeah. right here on the show. Here's the audio file. I mean, I've eaten dog <laughs> occasionally. I meant to say I've eaten meat, but you know, it doesn't matter if it's dog meat. We've all, you know, what everybody eats shaving cream once in a while, and it happens. Well, Things happen. It's not dog meat, man. There's, there's different implications in eating dog meat. Euphemisms, you know, dog meat, shaving cream. People have to do things to survive, and you know it's it's like stay in a bad marriage to survive. Well, I understand. No, it's talk about your bad marriage, so at least you could have gotten the pinto worked on, so you wouldn't have gotten stuck at the farm because you got into a fight because your husband caught you cheating. If you'd have talked to him about being unhappy, you probably would have gotten the pinto worked on, and you wouldn't have had to go up to that farm, and your kid wouldn't have died. But the kid doesn't die, so it's not effective. They live, and everything's okay, and everyone's a happy family, except for the family of the sheriff, the mechanic, and the mechanic. Helper. They're all probably pretty upset. <laughs> hey, we went through a traumatic experience where we both literally almost died. <laughs> that ain't enough to keep your marriage together. But that's even what Fight Club is about. Your child needs to die. You can't your child needs to die for it to be a cohesive marriage. You can't start living until you hit rock bottom. Yeah, you had to kill the kid. I mean, that's why he wrote it in the book to kill the kid. Hey. Even in the tall grass, hey, the kid hey, gets hey, fed hey. to the mother. Oh, my God. Because it sure sounds like it. No, I believe in killing the kid. I'm God. <laughs> what does this have to do about God? This is this is if anything Moral the most ungodly. Hey, if you didn't want your kid to die, you probably shouldn't have fucked that waiter at fucking Rafferty's. No, he he was a, a furniture repair man. He wasn't a waiter. Did you even watch the movie? I haven't watched it <laughs> probably eight years, maybe. Well, I watched it today, and I felt the moral of the story is that she had at least been honest about her cheating with her husband. to die. The kid oh, no, the, the, go. the whole point of the story. It's semantic. He smothered the death of the car. I don't know. She should have just been honest. That's the point. If you were just honest, the Pinto would have been worked on and the kid wouldn't have died. But in the movie, it doesn't matter if you're honest or a liar because the kid doesn't die and everyone's what I'm happy. saying is I don't think it matters either way. There's <laughs> not even references to the Sibonese Animation Army in this movie. And that's what Cujo's about. What are you talking about this? What? <laughs> that's what Cujo's named after. Okay. What's Willy the Wolf? next movie, Hank? Hey, no, seriously. Cujo got his name from Willie Wolf. It was his nickname, the, the guy 
guy that kidnapped Patty Hearst? That's where Stephen King, out of a completely coked up delusion, came up with the idea. He also straight up says uh, he doesn't remember writing Cujo whatsoever. He had a pinto that wasn't starting, and that's pretty much where the movie came from. So I fucking kid you not, it's about the goddamn pinto. My, my car's not running. What? There's a dog out there trying to kill me, and I couldn't get out of the car. No, that's what happened. There was two situations. Pages. Yeah, he did a bunch of blow, and he had a pinto that wasn't working right, and then earlier in his life, he had a motorcycle, and he had to drive to the middle of nowhere in Maine to get this motorcycle worked on, and when he got there, this big St. Bernard ran out at him, and the guy threw a beat the dog with a wrench and stopped it from biting Stephen King. Cujo. Alright, what's the next movie? I don't know. Oh, God. No, it's just uh, just down more downhill. Um, so we're going to talk about Thomas Jane and how bad his accent is. Oh, this is all about some fucking punishment. This, this, what this is about this was punishment to watch. This is a film called 1922 based on another Stephen King show. Is this a short story or novel? Is this a novella? I, I don't look at the research we did, but Thomas. Jane, it is an accent. He's a thing, definitely in the movie. I had to stop watching the movie a handful of times just to like walk outside and cool down from whatever type of accent he's trying to do. I guess it's Maine. I guess that's his main accent. Kansas or some bullshit. Well, whatever it is, it's not good. This was directed by I think um, uh, Zach Hilditch. I don't know. I think he wrote the screenplay for it too. Well, this movie is. I mean, if you haven't watched it, it's not about the Pinto, and it's definitely about. About the kid dying. It's about a, kid, a guy who the only thing he cares about is his son and his farm. And I want to hold those things as long. Do you really as think he cares about his son? Yes, because that's the only two things he actually gives a shit about. I think um, it's more of a, like a level of of like my possession. This is my kid, my boy, my. Well, thing. care is a subjective word. We'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he murders his wife to hold on to those things, and ultimately her murder fucking haunts him and his son for the rest of their lives and lots of bad shit happens to him. He loses the form, loses the kid and then they come back as ghosts who have rat-eating faces. The end. Well, and, and there's rats. Yeah, there's a lot of rats that are constantly fucking with them. And it, maybe these are just visions. Maybe they are ghosts. Maybe they're not ghosts. But For the most part, it was a just like masturbatorial and completely pointless. I get what you're saying that this is it's a dick. Tales of the Crypt episode. It really is. It's short. Like itself should be short because for the ultimate ending of I can't believe they dragged on for an hour and forty minutes. Well, let's go back to Cujo with Stephen King making things about ridiculous stuff. What I derive as the point of Cujo is if you'd have been honest about your affair, your pinto would have been worked on and your kid wouldn't have died. In this essence, it's generally the same thing. It's okay, we're gonna kill this bitch. Oh, she wasn't such a bitch, and now we have to pay for it. Well, I mean, that's part of what it is, but the lesson that he's learned, if he even learned it at all, was maybe you need to let go of the past. I don't think there was even a clear point that there was a message learned. He he even makes it clear, you know, I drank all the money away and I kept working until the rats found me, which is not emphasized whatsoever. No, I mean, I'm talking the about the ultimate moral of the story, not so much what the character learned. The I took it as almost moralist as, you know, if, if no, you're no, just no. a dick, you get punished. 
everything that he was afraid of happened to him when he tried to hold on to it. If he would have just gone to the city with his wife, the outcome would have been completely different. So instead of trying new things, he tried to hold on to the past, and it ultimately killed him. And the past literally comes back to kill him. But you got to take those ghost rat people, all those Stephen King brain teasers that are pulled into it. He didn't even love her in the first place. I mean, if you genuinely loved somebody, you wouldn't slit their throat after getting them drunk. And was she a great person? Like the movie gives you this affair. So well, yeah. in your book, what does that mean? No, it means it, it got, if, if you're well, happy, she died, the kid died. I guess justice if you is have served. Pinto, it only applies if you have a. The, it's about the Pinto. It's about the Pinto. Ah, God, I hate you. I hate you. My whole thing is they display her of being this like awful person to where what does that have to play? Like she's a bitch. So that's why they killed her. Her personality and who she is has nothing to do with why he's killed her. dental in the story, really. I mean, it, it needs to an end. She's like, it's just a weak characterization. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything, but it's just a poor portrayal of a character or a person. It doesn't have to be because it's a woman, but it's like, let's just make them unlikable. So when we kill them and get rid of them, it won't shock the audience as much, but then they try to, pull her back later as somebody you're supposed to feel bad for. So what direction are you trying to push me in with even caring about this character? You've made me care about Thomas Jane, and he's obviously the quote. I don't care about Thomas Jane at all. Well, I'm not saying you do, but I'm saying the point is you're supposed to take him in and be under his spell, watching it from his perspective. And I think it's another one of those Stephen King problems where like, we're going to focus on kind of a shithead, kind of like Nightflyer, and we're going to take the travel with him. But I mean, really. I mean, he wasn't so much a shithead in, in the story for Nightflyer. He was just a writer. Um, if you want to go into generally, let's put it in a weird leftist sort of way. Let's get political. Hey, I don't ever want to lose this farm or have any Mexicans on it. Let's build a wall around it. And oh no, it did nothing. And everything I was afraid of happened anyway because I refused to accept actual things and progress. Because that's what it's basically about. He refuses to accept any sort of progress and it dooms him and it kills him like it will kill anybody when you try to hold on to something so hard something that you literally have no control over I guess that's probably going to end up killing you in the end by via rat people Rat. And then it does with no real explanation. I guess I'm looking more at uh, the movie's faults and problems here. That like it these characters. A, it's a Tales in the Dark Side episode. I mean, just splitting it down and looking at things here. For most part of the movie, you're kind of led to believe that he is seeing the visions of his wife out of guilt. And oh no, no, it's a ghost sort of thing. It's she's actually there. That's dropped on you at the end of the movie. Oh no, it's actually visible. His kid shows up. Uh, his kid's girlfriend shows up. They're all eaten by rats they're actually there so you've got this fucking absolutely horrifying aspect just shoved down your throat and what would generally be more of a psychological thriller or a drama even i'd say this is more drama material than anything else but hey it's stephen king so now it's ghosts at the absolute end and there's nothing pleasing about it i tried really really hard to at least
aside and, and playing things up watching it I continuously was trying to at least get behind anyone's motivation I was just trying to sympathize or relate to anyone and as it completely drives forward it just becomes more mundane that nothing is happening There's nothing no one is, to sympathize with yeah, at all no one um, is learning a lesson no one is having a character arc no one is progressing and then by the time you get to that eight minute mark where you know well damn they didn't explain anything but I only have eight minutes left about, right, it drops it's about, it's about your growth as a viewer you know, the, none of the like, I grew small I, I um, shrank as a viewer instead of growing I got more and more annoyed going it's through a morality that. tale is all it is I mean that's all I'm saying it's are you like, saying I don't have morals I'm saying that you, you find morality tales not very interesting because the characters you should grow in them I find they, they don't have an arc other than punishment I can tell you exactly I find tales of morality boring because I find humans and morals boring and this lack of consideration for other people that there has to be a story about killing your wife because you want to farm something so stupid where again you enter a marriage out of the supposed idea of love and compassion and all this dumb bullshit that you have to get a piece of paper signed for but you're willing to kill someone over that bores me that's humans are just vile nasty to quote aliens creatures that fuck each other over for the sake of fucking each other over a percentage it's not entertaining to me to see people just be dismal I live I know the world it's left to speak I think it shot well. I think uh, the acting is. I think it shot well for. Pretty, uh, uh, like Tom Jane does a really good job in the movie because like it's hard it's to shot, see it's Tom like, Jane I can't give that you that. Character. I can't say it's shot well because most. I mean, it's shot well oh, for a lot of green screens. It's shot well for a lot of not green screen it. Well, there's not a lot of actual stuff. I mean, you've got a lot of sets, the backdrops. And then all the old cars, but nothing particularly was to me, you know, more amazing than TV. Well, I mean, I didn't say it was like over the top shot. It's not like we're panels cosmatos here and we're throwing fucking gels on show. What I'm just saying is talking about for the stuff. time period that they're like trying to recreate, it's shot well. It, yeah, okay. The of grays and greens over it to set you in the environment they're putting in is like almost this um, pre-dust bowl type situation. I'll uh, give you like, this. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's all I'm saying. I think Thomas well, no. does a good job of transforming himself. I mean, compared to like Attack of the Beast Creatures, which is a movie set in the 1920s, this one definitely has uh, an ambiance. It does feel and look like a 20s it's movie. It's got a good tone to it. I will say that. It, lo- it has a good tone to it, but to me, it just, I don't know, it was just a made for TV movie. The story's weak. The, the story's, well, I think that has a lot to do with the story because the story itself is just weak because it just doesn't go anywhere. Again, you could have wrapped this up in about 30 minutes as opposed to dragging it out for an hour and a half, but I suspect since Stephen King is very popular again, we're going to be getting a lot more of his 
is short stories that like for a short story for 20 pages can have a really good ending but when you drag it out for an hour and a half it's that's hard to get a really acceptable ending that's why um like Stephen King anthology stuff works so well sometimes because the story, that's what the story is crafted for. It's crafted for about 20 to 30 minutes and then we're out. You said this earlier, just using the term exploitation again. If Stephen King shorts are treated like exploitation movies, they would be much more successful. If 1922 was treated like an 80s grindhouse movie, it would have been absolutely crazy. Rat-eating people, this guy's completely... He's not even upset over his actions. He's upset he didn't get his way. He's not learning anything. That's a driving exploitation force, just this greedy, awful, vile character. And you would need to like push up on that, make him more despicable, make the character more abusive or what I mean well, it wasn't even so much a lot abusive. more harsh and you can push it to be a little bit more over the top but they decided to have a more realistic like well, and that's where story. I story and that, that's just not that interesting when you take it this realistic that's where I find things boring because I live in this world and I know how awful people are and I've experienced people fucking me over and watched other people fuck other people over I don't want to watch it for 90 minutes in a movie give me a fucking possessed laundry machine yeah I'm telling you most of his stories work better in 30 minute increments because that's about all the thought he put into it. Uh, it just depends like, on the story. story. But like, give me 90 minutes for the possessed laundry machine. The car driving around on its own killing people sounds all right. I'll take that one. That's cool. If but you give him too much time, you end up with Dreamcatcher. That is the problem with Stephen King. Well, if you give him too much Oxycontin, you end up with Dreamcatcher. Well, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. But you know what I mean. It's just like he starts like just shoehorning in all this stuff to like basically pat it out. It's like, this isn't what story are you even telling anymore it's weird like trying to go like into the universe like trying to probe or send a satellite out in the Stephen King universe because there's no like chronological way to start you can go at his early work or you can go to the 80s or you can even go to recently and it's just now there's so much source material for Stephen King and it's so overwhelming you just are drowning in it if you try like like this whole show we sit down and we do this entire thing if you take this as a this two part as a marathon, it's overwhelming because you quickly start realizing there are no resolutions, there are no endings. If there are endings, they're not good ones where the kid dies and it just, you know... <laughs> good ending where the kid fucking dies. Just kill the goddamn little kid! Um, oh, wait. Cujo? Yeah, we should have done four and four. Oh yeah, we didn't do that. Four and four, I'll give you that. Because uh, it's a, it, I'm not going to rate this and say it's a four and four because it's a classic, but it really is. And this is one of those terrorizing movies that you always remember differently. And I love that about Stephen King. And this is a big part of this show. So many of these movies that we picked, yeah, it's a great movie. Oh man, it was when I was 17. But Cujo some somewhat always has a. a Just still works. Yeah, you always have still works to this day. Well. What makes it so specific is you've got that crazy Stephen King of let's take a, a thing and make it do another thing, but it's something you experience most people weekly, every day of your life. I have a dog sitting right next to me. You know the terror of being mauled or hurt by something that just haunts your mind as a human being. Uh, you know the, the most dangerous game sort of thing. Can you prevail? So it works. I'll give it the same thing. Um, Nineteen twenty-two. I'm, I'm two fucking, half and a two. One one. <laughs> Oh, Did not, wow. didn't enjoy anything and I love Thomas Jane he's he's a hell of an actor and this was his accent just made me want to fucking drink <laughs> it, it was hard why don't you put the cameras away to your board anyway what's next on the list 
Well, we'll move into something that I like that's all right. I don't know how you feel about it, but it's by Tom Holland from 1996. Thinner, Robert John Burke, everybody's favorite man in black, the Dust Devil himself, and Joe Montague. Okay, and this is actually based on a full novel. It's not a short story. I can't believe this was a full novel. <laughs> I cannot believe he dragged this out. This oh, that's another weird like quirk with Stephen King is that like 982-page books would have been fucking awesome as a five-page short story, and some of his three-pagers are like, damn, wish you'd have gone more into that idea. That was really great. This is a, a toss-in between it because it's an all-right story, and I think it translates better as a novel, definitely. There's a lot more detail and there's a lot more persnickety parts that tell you what's going on. The movie's very jumpy. There's a lot missing. There's a lot more imagination. We're supposed to have a fucking lizard man, and we don't really get a good lizard man. Yeah, like, I mean, the general premise, I think, is pretty strong of a gypsy curse that makes a fat man get thinner. until. Which, again, we talked about earlier, like, things that scare the hell out of you as a kid. This is, like, a straight-up childhood perspective story of somebody that wants their cake and to eat it, too. And then what's scary? You know, you go to the carnival, weird people. It's a gypsy curse. That's just the most childlike, horrifying thing. And this, it, it ran, though. It, it By the end of the movie, you I don't know who you feel more sympathetic for the gypsies or uh, Billy Hallett. There's no one. No one to feel sympathetic. Because the gypsies are kind of assholes, which I guess that's apparently a very poor term to use is the term gypsy. And so this movie is riddled with the whole idea of these Romanians that dress a certain way and they're all carnies and they travel around state to state. And I guess that's a very offensive. I I, go see in the Wolfman, basically. Yeah, they really play off against something Stephen King saw as a child and it scares him. But I guess it's not openly acceptable to use that terminology anymore. Yeah. Um, We're fucking we're PC after the whole kill the kid and it's about the pinto thing well you'll like the ending of this one uh, did she have the affair though uh no I, maybe I don't not. think she was having an that's affair how, that's, that's his just desserts he kills his fucking family with his fucking cursed pie which is the biggest bone of contention for me is the fact that he, we told you the general story of a fat man getting thin I don't have a problem and when the, to get the curse lifted he does a bunch of despicable things like working with the mob and a lot of people die and well okay hold on hold on he was despicable before that so he's an attorney and he's this big fat piece of shit and the movie starts with him getting a mobster off so he uh, obviously so well yeah but some lawyers have surprise what you want i i I, okay this is a stupid statement but i do like to believe that there might be a lawyer out somewhere that has uh, a heart of gold (laughs) is there a public defender out there that cares about america giuliani perhaps is that who you're speaking of oh yeah because he got the mob off the street i'm I'm a country lawyer (laughs) (laughs) i just like like you just shit on my whole train of thought because that's that's the most hysterical. He said it. He I know. Said he was a country lawyer. It's the funniest fucking thing I've heard in my entire goddamn life. Is this goddamn Brooklyn motherfucker? I'm a country lawyer. That <laughs> was the epitome of stand-up comedy. Rudy Giuliani is the funniest fucking man in America. I will give him that much. Uh, but he's a despicable guy from the beginning. You know, he's getting a mobster off, and they're making fun of it. Oh, he instantly he and like and I think this was kind of missed out because I haven't read Thinner, so I'll give you that. But I don't. His wife is genuinely concerned about him and his behavior. Maybe she is cheating. It's neither here nor there. Cujo, just to talk about it. What all I goddamn have to say is if she had been honest about 
her affair with her husband, oh, he could have gotten the Pinto God. worked on. It's not about her being a slut. It's just about being honest because the Pinto could have gotten worked on. In this situation, it doesn't matter who's honest or who isn't because you have displayed to you right off the bat a douchebag. So a douchebag is going to do anything with the douchebag mindset. Yes, you're canceled. You're canceled. I got shot on the last episode. We haven't even addressed that. <laughs> Nobody's well, even... Who shot Hank? Come on. That could have been a whole Dallas thing. And we haven't even talked about it. Fuck you. You're canceled. If you're Son canceled, mother, I'm mother, probably canceled as well. So. But um, I think overall Tom Holland did an okay job making a 90s horror film. I just think the premise itself is pretty goofy. And again, probably could have been a 30-minute short. Um, and then the idea in the pie... And he kills his wife and child accidentally with the pie, or kills the child. Yeah, that, that to me was funny, but I, I think pie, a, a strawberry pie. Are you fucking kidding me? That is the ending of this movie. Is a strawberry fucking pie. But I think the big point is uh, douchebag behavior gets treated with douchebag behavior. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's another morality tale. Because well, you, you've, that's a big theme with everything Stephen King does. But with the character, you slowly start to from how he's displayed despite the fact that he's a bad guy for all intents and purposes. You kind of like Billy. You kind of like at the beginning of the movie, he seems like a good dad. He has a good relationship with his wife and his kid. And then it slowly starts to unravel. The second something goes bad to him, he begins putting the blame on other people. So his wife's sucking his dick as they're driving down the road and they hit this old gypsy. Throughout the entire rest of the movie, it's, well, if you weren't sucking my dick, this wouldn't have happened. So it's just this back and forth of people. And then it goes down to the extent of, well, the mayor, or not the mayor, the judge and the sheriff all helped me, so they deserve this more. I said I was sorry, my wife was sucking my dick, so you, again, this character is just digging his own hole of not realizing, forgive, well, not taking forget. Ownership. He didn't take any ownership of what he'd done. And that's oh, forgive and forget, there has to be, and there's the statement with the, the gypsy at the end of the movie, die with honor, die clean, you did something wrong. Now, what the gypsy's doing essentially is the same thing, you're taking life for the sake of taking life, and none of that's positive or okay or acceptable, so so all of this is just a circle jerk of negativity. Then you get to the end of the movie. You finally think it's going to be redeeming. He just killed his wife. He just, he knows he's, he's sealed his daughter's fate and that she's going to die. This should be absolutely horrifying. This should be awful. But the guy, his wife supposedly is cheating on him with knocks at the door and he has an extra slice of pie. So what's the fucking point? Nothing breakfast happened. Pie. Yeah. Breakfast pie is the point. We're going to have some <laughs> breakfast pie. Okay, at least getting the pinto worked on was a point. This is just... <laughs> you're hung up on that one, I swear to God. You're because that at least had a point. This is just a big circle of... He still... He wins. He doesn't... He goes from, oh, God, my daughter, my... my the seat of my loin is going to die. Up, Dr. Mikey's here. Fuck that guy. So no one learns anything. No one cares about anything. And I mean, was he, goes he punished? To, it proves my point, though, because Stephen King was a kid who grew up in the 50s and 60s and read a lot of easy comics. And he has pretty much based his entire career on recreating the stories, similar stories to the ones he read in EC Comics and making basically fucking billions of dollars off of just regurgitating EC, EC comic morality. Plays. I wouldn't say billions, but I mean, he's probably made he's, billions. He's made billions over the years, yeah. trust me. Um, his name has made billions, maybe not him personally, but um, let's just companies. say that he's got a very, very happy agent. Very happy life. Uh, but I mean, that's what this 
this is again it's a fucking tales from the crypt story it's like uh, at the end he's laughing and eating breakfast pie that's gonna kill him the end could have been a tales it could have been on uh, in creep show for christ's sakes Same my drag and my big you know thing here is there was no point there was nothing learned there was no delivering of characters no, there was just, no he gets, yeah. his, he gets his just desserts literally for christ's sakes yeah but he turns around immediately and doesn't care anymore like oh god it really sucks my kid's going out to play soccer and is going to turn into a weird goo mush ball but this guy that might have maybe fucked my wife ah fuck it i'm gonna get him too okay yeah, so you're just his mind you're just he a douchebag well no he never lost his mind that's who he was under all that fat he was just a miserable piece of shit person and you know it all came out at the end. That's who he was. And that's story. In 1922, most of these villainous human stories with Stephen King comes down to the end. Exact same story of just desserts. It's a Tales from the Crypt issue. Oh man, it was it was man being awful the whole time. Who would have guessed it? But like, I think Fenner is a fairly well-made movie. I think the special effects work is uh, like clunky as they can be. It's Lizard Man's not great, but I like it. I, I this was one of John my. John Montana's a fucking. He's a gem. That man, I will watch him do anything. He's a diamond, uh, certainly. And this is one of his like like wacky performances because he's not even mobbing it up. He's just killing people and doing wild shit. This was one of my like I really want to put on the list picks just because Thinner is, for all intents and purposes, a fun movie and it has a, a redeemable watchability. You can go back. It is dated. It's 1996, and you have that. It feels like 1996. It was one of those movies that I, when I saw it in the theater and I walked like fucking five miles to see it because I didn't have a car in the town that I lived in at the time. And I walked five miles to go see it and the last like ten minutes I'm in the theater going basically by myself, mind you. What? Really? Is this how we're ending it? Oh, Jesus Christ. Cursed pie. What the fuck ever. And I was pissed. And then I think I saw uh, Crow City of Angels like that night, maybe. <laughs> Had a bad experience all around, it seems like. I like City of Angels, though. That's an all right Crow movie. I'll be sympathetic with the first three Crow movies. I like uh, City of Angels. Third one's not bad. <laughs> Both the first two Crow movie soundtracks are absolutely exceptional. You also have, outside of the Deftones, I think there's a Corn song on there that wasn't Corn, bad. Hole, Filter. Yeah. That's on the City of Angels soundtrack. Hole doing Gold Dust Woman. That's a great cover. And then there was a band called L.A. Loose that does a song called Spit. I've never heard anything else from them in my entire life, but it is one hell of a song. This was a brief Crow City of Angels interlude brought to you by the family of Brandon Lee. It was not in that movie. <laughs> we took a hard left off Thinner into some weird material, but unfortunately that's not Thinner's fault because it is pretty steady, and I mentioned it Because the, the plot is pretty thin. Give it up. But I'm bugging up. Yes. That was pretty good. Uh, I'm pretty talented. I, I think I'm pretty talented. Oh, Robert John Burke, who I reference as everyone's favorite man in black, the Dust Devil. He's, I mean, Joe Montaigne is great. He's the shining gem of this. The fat suit at the beginning's not that impressive. And as he loses weight is where it, you know, really shows off that he put a lot of effort into this. And he's just got a very over-the-top, crazed performance. And it's fun. And it's just I'm nice watching it. erased. That's what I remember from the trailer. Spitting turkey all over her mouth. That's great. <laughs> What do you give it? You got points? Uh, I would, funnily enough, uh, after some years have passed, I will give Fenner three stars out of five. I think it's slightly above average 
crap, but it's it's about three and probably about two, maybe two and a half stars. I don't know. Three is pretty hard. <laughs> 90s kids will definitely relate to this feeling a little bit more than the older generation, but when you used to stay home from school and we're laying on the couch and you got finished watching bullshit like The Price is Right or old episodes of soap operas, something like this would come on at like one in the afternoon, two o'clock, and this is one of those strep throat movies. I just have memories of laying on the couch watching staticky cable TV and something like Thinner being on. So it always has a, a charming feel specifically because of that. It just feels like a stay-at-home, sick, rainy day movie. You can laugh. It's a little silly. It's definitely a three. It's sturdy. It's watchable. It has rewatchability. Robert John Burke's great. Uh, just to keep saying his name, I just like his name. Robert John Burke. Sounds like an assassin or um, something like cowboy. that. Cowboy. Oh, too well. Most cowboys, I guess, are assassins. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist. That yeah, he wasn't a cowboy. Never mind. That does not connect at all. Never mind. Yeah, yes. never mind. So I don't know. Moving on to a movie. Do you want to talk about something that doesn't have anything to do about cowboys? I guess we can move on. Let's move on. So we're gonna move on to another movie that I enjoy. This is by one of my favorite celebrated people. I think our favorite celebrated people, Toby Hooper's 1995, The Mangler. Oh, okay. This is a problematic movie. I love it. It's Ted a problematic Levine movie. It. But Ted yeah. Levine is the star. It's about a haunted laundry machine. It's about a haunted laundry machine. That's 100% correct. The laundry machine gets there haunted. There's an injury at the plant. There's an injury at the yeah, I know. I, can, I should have done Ted Levine from the first was, start of the show. Yeah. I'm going to do Ted Levine voices the rest of the time. Yeah, I'm Ted Levine now. It puts a lotion on his skin. That's terrible. You're That's, terrible. I sound just like him. What are you talking about? I'm just. Uh, so, this movie was hyped. It was hyped hard as three masters of horror Stephen King, Toby Hooper, and Robert England, and a lot of old age makeup that looks terrible. Stephen King for this. An intense experience in horror about a fucking laundry machine that kills people. Um, ooh, okay. Like, the Hold only on. thing that makes this work, I will I'll go uh, right at the top and say this. Toby Hooper makes this movie work and makes it enjoyable. Everything else is pretty much completely trash. Well, I've been hollering this entire show about haunted laundry machines, and it's a bit incorrect because it's an industrial haunted laundry machine. It's an industrial press laundry yeah. press. It's not because you get the idea that it's like a haunted laundromat, which also could have been a somewhat entertaining movie with Ted Levine. It's got such potential as an idea because it's like this ancient evil stuck inside this thing and this guy's slowly been losing his limbs and becoming mechanical to be more like the machine and all of that's just absolutely overlooked. To me, this was one of the flatter Toby Hooper movies of his career compared to things like Life Force, which is generally like a hated, hated movie and I'll put that high on a pedestal over this. Ted Levine is what made it for me. His performance solely he's a curmudgeon prick, but unlike Nightflyer, it's not someone you hate. He, You at least get a reason as to why he's a dick. You find out that he lost his wife, and it was somewhat his fault, as he thinks, that he was driving the car. But something also very present in every Stephen King story is things happen because things happen. That's just what happens in life and is explained to him. But he's a negative kind of guy because of that. So you can at least relate again to a character. It's nice having somebody. It seems, despite, like we mentioned earlier, King and all of his sons are very 
great with characters. And when you read the books, you can really get into the, who these people are and who they stand for, what they stand for. You can relate to them. The film translations all seem very vapid and empty, but with the Mangler, you have somebody that you can somewhat understand. And his like introduction is pulling out in front of the garbage truck and, you know, officer asshole to you. And it's comedic, but at the same time, it translates and moves differently, but it just doesn't feel like Toby Hooper to me. I think a lot of him is missing. It feels like more of a product movie than a Toby Hooper movie. I think the stuff that works best is, of course, Ted Levine and the atmosphere that's created um, around it, the lighting, um, what Toby Hooper does with kind of the characters because he does you like play them very arch throughout. He gives them a soul. Um, but like all those things accounted for this film would never work just for the sheer fact that the story that it's based on does not work. The fact that there's a fucking haunted laundry press that is killing people and human sacrifice and the town living off the humans. Who cares? This is all Stephen King nonsense. It's all hairspray and filler. It's all bullshit. And the movie itself is overly long. Uh, well, you got to take two stories, I guess. You got to uh, figure out what story you want. Do you want this the fridge over- or the? <laughs> yeah, you, know, you either have the overwhelming backstory of all of this stuff and the weird Robert England character and everything going on, or you get the character arc with Ted Levine and him growing as a person. But if you want to combine them both, it's just not fun. Like half the movie's really, really enjoyable from one aspect, and then when it starts focusing on the evil and what is the reason for all of this, this is one of the few times that too much explanation kind of ruined it. So King can like either not explain it or just overly explain it to the point that it's just moot and not fun anymore. Yeah. And like, and overall, I think it's just, it's a little too ridiculous of an idea. And like the, his brother-in-law character, this hippy dippy dude who's into magic, like he's going through all this explanation and we're really trying to set this thing and ground it in sort of like a mystical reality base. And it's still just a haunted fucking laundry press. Who gives a shit? Yeah. At its core, this is the most deathbed, the bed that eats people. Like Toby Hooper tried so hard to turn this into something. I like, I appreciate him so much for putting out like everything in this and really trying to make this work, but there's just no way anyone could have made it work. No way possible. I think it works, but it's just to an extent you have to kind of laugh things off. You have to realize, yes, this is serious. This is a serious movie about a haunted laundry machine. You got to get not machine, but laundromat. You have to get over it. And if you can excuse that and then try and like surface level, dig some things up, it's enjoyable. But like as a coherent movie, you want to sit down and break apart and review. You you can. I mean, I guess. But Ted Levine's cool. Toby Hooper tried really hard, which should be on his headstone. Here lies Toby Hooper. He tried so hard. He, I mean, out of all of his like uh, his, you know, quote unquote, more recent movies and by that I mean from the 90s on this is probably one of his better ones and it's one of the more realized ones where he was able to take it's not it, bad make it like he made a, a complete movie and it's lit well it's acted well it's just the story itself sucks I mean later he wasn't as lucky with some other projects um, that just didn't turn out they were just kind of really sloppy but this one is all story fault it's just there's almost no way to do this and make it 
Oh, well, the rough part is you have a pretty good story, though. I mean, you've got this guy that lost his wife and he's kind of bitter and just trying to move on and get his 20 years so he can get out. And he has relationships with other people like the photographer that he works with is his brother-in-law. He tries. He, he gets up every day and he attempts. And that's more than most people can say they do for themselves. And then it just starts to filter out. You lose focus on him. You lose focus on the brother-in-law and it becomes this witchy, spooky story. And it's it's just a, a hash between both universes of Stephen That's King. That's the thing. That's my point. Is just yeah. so much. There's like there's so much to work with here that could be good. But once you got to do one of the other. Going back to that laundry machine is going. This is fucking ridiculous. Well, there's that's no what I mean. With, seriously, you got to take two different aspects of the story if you really want to enjoy it. If they had just focused on Ted Levine and the laundry machine was a back piece, it still would have worked. Like yeah, we got like almost a Scooby Doo mystery. Like we got to solve this, but there's other stuff going on. If it was handled at a, a first person angle of it being more about Ted Levine, it would have been fluent and more successful as to you add this ooky spooky fucking laundry machine. It's laughable. It if gets that was, legs and all yeah. this, and it starts killing people in some CGI madness. You turn that into something, you know, uh, more focused on human development and it's still a possessed laundry machine, you might have been able to make it a little bit more believable. But again, it's 95. So this is a, what, like um, Lawnmower Man and a lot of garbage was not even to reference it as a Stephen King story, but a lot of garbage was coming around around this time. So it was studio, you know, you got to do this. Again, this is the rough period for King when Nightflyer was done. Man- this is a rough or- period for just about everyone Banner. except like, like Wes Craven was doing good at this time there period. There were box office returns for any Stephen King properties at this point. Well, I mean, King was kind of a dying name in film. I don't mean just King. Let's look at all the masters. Wes Craven was doing somewhat okay in the mid-90s, but Toby's career was dead. Uh, everybody, like nobody had anything going on. It wasn't an uh-huh. era. It died. Yeah, it just wasn't uh, an acceptable era so a lot of the times looking back and trying to review these movies you're just looking at what the studios made them do like Toby probably didn't get carte blanche on whatever he wanted to do on this movie and it shows but it's still wait man I'll give it a you got a pound in my trailer for me to smoke first. Oh, cool. You just do whatever, man. Sure. Put my name on it. We'll do Hanel on your machine. I'm good. He would have Give me two. A Dr. Pepper. Yeah, there you go. There would be two specific requests for Toby Hooper, a case of Dr. Pepper and a pound of marijuana, and he would have been all right. I'll direct it. Fuck it. I don't care. Texas Chainsaw Master. Put it on over the title. How much money are you giving me? All right. All right. All right. Yeah, Toby <laughs> Hooper. Wooderson. <laughs> I don't know one of i think the most tragic losses to like our community if we can call it anything like that was toby hoover and it's gems like this like you can watch texas that's to me the greatest movie ever made but the mangler has some shining aspects i'll give it a three uh, i would not give it a three i would give it a two and a half mm. two and probably cult points probably up to four because it's such a ridiculous concept. Robert England is batshit. Robert England is just like a shithouse rat acting it up. If anyone's been doing rails of cocaine, it was he's Robert. the top. Yeah, he's got these crazy contacts in and this old age makeup, these giant Forrest Gump leg clamps, and he's just this horny, greasy, nasty old guy. And the whole movie, you just feel a gag in the back of your throat whenever he touches someone. And that's effective. That's one hell of a performance. Robert England never really... 
is draft. It's a too uh, hammy for me. <laughs> well, that's I, I can't not take but the this movie itself is arch. I mean, it's, it's that's, not yeah, that's what I mean. I can't take this as anything but hammy. I mean, it's a fucking killing laundry mat. That's it's a, a laundry press that's gotten possessed. I can't, you know, it's a ham sandwich with cheese and mayo. Thank you very much. But yeah, the Mangler is probably it'll be one of the least remembered Stephen King properties because again, once people find out what it's about, it's just like I don't see how this could turn out at all. Funnily enough, when when you came up with the idea for this show, my first thing was, yeah, I want to do that Ted Levine one. Put that on the <laughs> yes, list. But you're abnormal. Yeah, I want to talk about the Mangler because that's what gets my rocks off. Get your rocks off, get your rocks off, honey. What's the next movie? Let's move on now. Well, I guess we uh, neglected to talk about this heavily throughout the show, but this is a two-parter, ladies and gentlemen. This is this week's episode and next week's episode. Maybe it's the future. Maybe every episode of Death by DVD from now on will just be about a Stephen King story. We could do that, but we are getting near the end. This is the end of this week's episode with uh, Gerald's Game from 2017. Directed by Mike Flanagan, who has just showed that he is a incredibly, amazingly adequate director because everything he has touched has turned out to be mostly decent. And, um, he also directed Hush, which was mediocre um, and pretty decent. He directed. I didn't care for uh, anything you're mentioning here. So we oh now have yeah, we're, we're turning against each other because I thought all the Ouija's were awful. I thought Hush was pretty boring. I mean, I do Origins is not very good, but for what the, his, like the starting point was, it's so much better than the uh, for a prequel. It's still light years ahead of the original. Um, what else did Mike Flanagan do? Um, he did the, like was it Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, whatever the hell they titled that. Uh, God, he's had his hands. He did Doctor Sleep, which is coming out that I'm sure you're going to hate. Um, I think but, everyone's going to have a, a big wave of disappointment with that. I mean, let's just not put it on Mr. Negativity. It's not like I hate everything. No, but I think you're blind on this one because I think this is one of the better adaptations of a Stephen King. All right, well, uh, this isn't at your fault or Mike Flanagan's fault or Gerald's Game's fault. This is one of the ones I've read. I didn't like Gerald's Game when I read it, and I didn't like watching it, and it had nothing to do with the difference of the translation. Uh, you know what? I apologize. I got Hush mixed up with another movie. I actually enjoyed it. Mike Flanagan did Absentia and Oculus, so he is... I, I, yes, I, Oculus. I forgot about Oculus. I he does, say, like, really... Consistent work. Adequate. You. That was yeah, a very, very, very adequate as a horror director. Yes, and it's and that seems almost negative, but it's adequate. No, that's, that is a compliment coming from me. Oh, he did before I wake too. Yeah. Um, if he's done all these movies and they've all turned out to be pretty fucking decent, then that he's a talent to watch. Well, there's nothing wrong with adequacy. Most people can't even aim for adequacy. I mean, not everyone's going to be Robert Eggers with their first motion picture. You're kind of lucky to have something like that. But I just never enjoyed Gerald's Game. I understand completely what it's about. My, you know, and I'll be honest here. My biggest problem is it gives me a lot of anxiety. I had a problem reading it. I know that's the entire point. So, I mean, that's literally me just being organic. I don't like the movie because of my personal feeling attached to it which is the greatest feeling or review you could really give with art of it's it's a wonderfully shot movie it's acted out its ass it looks good i have a few problems with a lot of the cgi use some of the best shots of the movie are riddled with cgi and that bores me just don't enjoy i i didn't have a fun time watching it and that affects my review because i don't know i'm i'm the vain one 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's a movie and a story that's not meant for. I'm explaining myself at least so I don't sound like I just want the kid to die because the pinto didn't work. <laughs> okay, like I gotta explain my fucking shit now on all all my calls. Well, I think about Gerald's game that works is how the story is revealed slowly over time. The concept of um, her being chained to this bed by a, this uh, is the pressure cooker. A hundred percent in love with. Um, she's loving. See that this is what I think is the most interesting thing is she's in love with the idea. Well, she's in love with the idea definitely yeah. because because she can never satisfy herself and allow herself to be free. So she has to have some sort of repression because that's she has to have some sort of restraint. She has to be tied to a bed. Yeah. Let's look at by the marriage by a father by many different things. Well, let's look at like the devils that we talked about last week. That there is a crutch. There are things that people need to get through. Whether it's religion, drinking, drugs, or some people with intent will self sabotage and ruin their own existence because they can't be complacent with being happy. And that's majorly what you have with the story. Is it's not that she can't be complacent with being happy. She hasn't come to terms with atrocities that have happened in her life, no matter what the by level. Of the, yeah, by men specifically, and she is essentially like you said, chained to these. You know, it's like getting your guts ripped out and eaten constantly by a giant vulture, having to carry the world on your back every single day. It's that same concept of never getting relief, never getting yourself or not even being able to be yourself because you've kept this idea up of what you think you need to survive with. Well, she's and like, that drive position she's in is because she can't like, she's not comfortable with this thing that her husband wants to do to her time who her is? Up while having sex, but she relents anyway. Because well, I, I guess, I guess a lot of people are comfortable with that, but I, my whole, my who is, is the whole daddy thing and all that. Yeah, stuff. it depends on your comfort levels and why you have these things. We talked about this last week, but she's uncomfortable with the idea of being tied up and she doesn't really want to, but she does because her husband asked her to and she's had a history of doing what men ask her to do. She has a history of trying to make other people happy. She specifically wasted almost herself making other people happy and being complacent otherwise. So they can exist and it's a situation now metaphorical restraints even to that point yeah she's metaphorically completely chained in her own life and for the first time now has to do something for herself here is a woman it doesn't matter that she's a woman i mean well god damn it yes in this story it matters she's a woman but in my frame of reference right now this could be applicable for absolutely anyone it doesn't matter that this character is a woman but if you can place yourself into her character and these restraints and look at metaphorically what you might be restrained training yourself with this can apply to everyone now i don't like the movie specifically because i have a claustrophobia problem so watching somebody chained to a bed despite it being a wide open space just set me fucking off and so i'm you yeah, know it's nerve-wracking yeah and especially how she ultimately gets out of the restraints is just like that was that's my favorite that's a fucking best. moment that's a oh that's hard to watch but wasn't it just a force wasn't it just uh, to me that's where i have been no violence no gore nothing horrific outside of her own thoughts and she's chained to this bed i've not been able to watch the movie at all i had to keep looking away god this is making me tense finally we kick into the gore not because of that it's not because it's violence being displayed she kicks into overdrive and does this action and fucking degloves her hand and, and rips it off and i'm now clapping and yelling because you've trans you this is finally where a stephen king character gets a point they there's a reason for things and you're explain the reason for things and they act upon those reasons and it yes. all makes sense this is a fully realized story and even overly realized is and this is a full novel yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, 
overly realized for the film novel wise the ending wasn't anywhere near as ludicrous because my biggest fault and what drops my rating and what really just oh just, yeah yes this, this was yeah and you even said this to me it was a great movie up until the end and it's maybe the last 50 seconds that destroys anything you just watched because well, i just i don't even care about her that she had to be hurtful that she's rude Rude people well, it, fucking piss me off. When you get to the ending and you find out that there really was some sort of deformed serial killer, and that's the representation of finally, like, I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of you seeing you in this court. I, I finally gotten over this trauma of, like, being scared. That of wasn't even my thing. Me. But you could have done that with Gerald. You don't need this extra character to, for her to ultimately let go of her. But her one, her they erase. They erase any negative aspect that Gerald had by his force ghost, for a lack of better term, waving to her as she leaves. So yes. you like you make Gerald seem like a sympathetic character, and I don't mind introducing that the representation of death because throughout the story she's hallucinating and is dealing with her own inner demons and this force, this this entity visits her and, you know, quote unquote, it's death or the idea of death. And in this story, it's Carl Struckian, the giant from Twin Peaks. He turns out to be a real person, a necrophile, serial killer. He doesn't harm her because she says, you're not real. You're made of moonlight. She almost says something nice to him. And they finally go to court. She walks in, which could never happen. And he turns and says so excitedly, oh, you're not real. I'm made of moonlight. And she almost laughs at him and, and makes a snark, snarky comment about him not being as big as she remembered him and turns around and leaves as to where this horrible necrophile spared your life because you possibly said something pleasant or nice to him and it just ends with what have you learned now you're just it's just like the pie you're just negative you're just a shithead everyone's yeah. a fucking shithead I mean it's really about her breaking out of her personal repression but she already did that before we even get to the serial killer crap like she's already she did that by as fucking, a person yeah she gloved her skin and ripped yes. herself out of it and literally ripped she herself from herself of Gerald she got like got Gerald out of her life got all this the towards men out of her life and that kind of degrades that when you have this like well I need one more moment to overcome at the end of like I'm gonna see somebody who scared me and they don't scare me so much anymore but I already felt that it just seems like adding two cherries to the uh, top of a Sunday. You just need one. Two is overkill. And well, I think, I think once it, you, it gets saved at the end. That's the end of the film for me personally. I think it lands as a cop out because I mean, male or female, anyone that's been abused, the last thing I think would be on your mind is waving goodbye to your abuser. No matter what they went through, Gerald might not have physically abused her. It might have been more mental and distance, and the fact that, that you was know also, that was a, that was a part of her, though. I mean, it's not really him. It's not really a ghost. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's her it's almost. A, it's an outgrowth of her version of him, and she's saying goodbye to even that. She's just saying like but goodbye. I don't need you anymore to cope with this. She's not the one that says goodbye and the way it's filmed and the way it turns out to me is Gerald is waving goodbye is okay it's all okay you've gotten over this as to where those scars don't define you and don't make you who you are but you've lived through these atrocities and nobody wants to wave to their abuser or to who hurt their heart so I just think it was a cop out and that's where the ending begins to falter for me of okay we've forgiven somebody who we've watched and learned wasn't 
the right person wasn't the, the, the I don't know what I mean by right person I mean it more like what well, isn't the you know what I mean but I don't know if the audience knows he what did, I mean he was, it was not a person that helped her release herself from her identity her traumas or anything else she, he was just another roadblock but I don't think Gerald was like the major problem it was her dad and Gerald's just kind of a he's almost a victim of that in himself because well, she the major problem is with anyway I mean I think the major problem with is her escaping from itself is her and her repressing things and not allowing herself to realize, yes, I was abused. Yes, this happened. I, I'm not just a statistic. I'm a person and, and I am allowed to have these feelings. I'm allowed to be who and I, I can am. cope with them. And I don't have to yeah. literally say goodbye to a boogeyman. That's what ruins the movie. For yeah. Me. I just, just like, I don't need the boogeyman. I get the, I get the you metaphor get you're doing. That. I didn't need such a broad metaphor at the end as well. I understood where we were going and then you just put more shit on top. One or the other would have been sufficient. You could have done a drilled wave. Personally, I would have left that out and had her leave the demon in the bedroom and would have just done the, the ending with the giant as it was. And, you know, either way it's coherent. What would have been perfect and more relaxing is she gets out of there and that's the end. She's going to live. And that's because survival. And we've discussed this and like with Cujo survival, in a point and it's like Night of the Living Dead that's the entire point of that movie is survive is just survive and get through what you have to get through that's life essentially and Stephen King makes these very long winded references to what life is but for the most part he never ends them and Life, I guess, ends. I don't think it technically does. I'm not saying there's a soul aspect of things, but, you know, energy, displacement, everything lives forever and memory or thought. It's all a circle. But things have to have an end if you're going to watch it for 90 fucking minutes. If you're going to release it as a product, if you're going to write a book, a a movie, whatever, you got to end it. Unfortunately, you can't just go. "Ah!" And that's what happens. Yeah, he ended it it twice twice and then goes. "Ah!" Like there's nothing satisfactory that I felt. Like by the end of Gerald's game, the whole beginning, middle, and end didn't matter to me. It wasn't satisfactory. You pissed all over what I just watched. Uh, I, I wouldn't say you pissed all over it. I would just say pissed on hospitality. You stretched it out a little bit. I would give it four and a three overall. Oh God, that's a lot higher. I'm gonna give it a three and a two. I don't give it many cult points. I didn't think it held anything significant. I mean, it's all right. It looks well, not yet. Yeah, it's but, still new to be really calling cult classic or not cult classic. So well, it's I mean, still new, but it doesn't have even a medium. I mean, the Mangler I think has more cult points than something like this because at I least said the Mangler has uh, three. Yeah, no, I'm just you know in general, I, I wouldn't give this anyway. I mean, maybe in 20 years I'll come back because I'm sure we'll still be doing this in 20 years. Yep. No, I'll be dead. Most definitely. It doesn't matter. So, wow, the first part of the Stephen King Spectacular. Oh, we can't call it that because we did the Scream Queen Spectacular. Nuts. Uh, the Stephen King Special? I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to do more of these. More and more and more because it's not over yet. It's all month Stephen King, baby. Till oh, Halloween. Welcome to October. We're cramming Stephen King down your throat. And then you get our special. Oh, we can't wait for the week of Halloween. We're going to have a lot of extra special episodes and very specific. I got a challenge for the audience. Uh, You all out there in Radio Land, by the end of this, if you can figure out what our special Halloween Stephen King related shows will be, we'll send you a free sticker. Shipping where Apple 
So I guess the ashtray is full and the bottle's empty. This brings us to the end of week one of the Stephen King scary spookies Stevies. God, God, soul. Yeah, I got no more S words, but hey, we're going to be back with more Stephen King next week on Death by DVD. Somebody shoot us. recorded in front of a dead studio audience. That by DVD has concluded another day of broadcasting. That by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building transmitting with one billion watts of audio power as authorized by the Federal Commission of Broadcasting and offices at 123 Easy Street. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.